you, Aten Ray, for your wisdom, your your willingness to do what's right for your local community. So I was just really astonished at how the depth that Aten Ray has and you know, the title of the podcast really speaks well to his brilliance, sharpness plus proximity plus community. His lived experience and how he grew up, how he was able to see the experiences he had that could have set him in a different direction making sure that wouldn't happen in his local community. So it just speaks volumes about Aten Ray and his heart. So appreciative of him being on this podcast. Um, check out what he does between Team Sharp, Proximity Project, and his soon-to-come-out book, y'all, about nonprofit leadership. Peace. Ronderings fam, it's good to be back with my friend, Aten Ray Elaine. We met through a dear friend of ours in the Delaware world, Christopher Ruskowski. Oh boy, maybe eight years back. I don't remember the exact timeline. And Aten Ray and I just really vibe on all things entrepreneurial, social justice, youth development. And so I've just always really been impressed about how Aten Ray thinks and the particular lens he has around being able to do equity work. So Aten Ray, welcome to the podcast, brother. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm excited to be on. And uh, I know it's, it's special to be on here knowing all the people you know and uh, getting the chance to share my story. I'm excited. Awesome. And you're in Poland right now, so you're, you're, you're a number of hours ahead. So I really appreciate you uh, coming on to make sure we can sync our schedules with time zone, brother. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a yeah. story that I'm sure we'll dig into. <laughs> what, what, is, that, what is this black guy doing to get it? A little get nugget. I'm like, he's in Poland? Wait, what? <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. So, Andre, tell tell us your story. Yeah, I'll get to the, the Poland part and the uh, escaping a war part later. So I'm uh, bearing that part of the lead. But, you know, all of this for me connects when I think about my story. So I was born in um, Philadelphia, grew up in southern New Jersey, in Willingboro, New Jersey. I'm the last of my mom's five children, and she had her oldest uh, when she was 20 and her last when she was 40, um, which is me. And yeah, so there's a big gap. Uh, and You're also the, the, the child of a mom that was older. My mom had me when she was 43. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and so, you know, you had that dynamic, a a mom who had me at 40, had a lot more wisdom experience, uh, her first three at 20, 21 and 22, and then my sister at 38 and then me at 40. So you had that dynamic. Then she named me Atmiya Khan, Sayang Krun, Babatunde Aline, um, which made for scary first days of school when uh, they would call calling me at school. Um, But she gave me this name that uh, when I was younger, did not appreciate Atmira Khan, um, at the time of my birth, she was studying a lot of Egyptology, was very interested in, in Black power and Black is be- beautiful, and mm. gave me this name. She was studying Egyptology, and they gave me a name that came from Akhenaten, the first pharaoh, I believe, uh, to kind of institute monotheism. And so Atmira Khan means revealed spirit of the water. And all the other names have uh, various pieces of significance. Did not know the meaning of your name reveals the spirit of water. That's yeah. that's, that's deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reveals spirit mm-hmm. of the water, Aten Khan. And uh, my mother, you know, when I talk about my story, I have to talk about her because a lot of who she is uh, shaped how I lead, how I live. And a big you know, piece of that is that she really had pride and has pride in just being Black. Uh, she's a powerhouse. She goes to the beat of her own drum. Um, one of my most treasured moments when I was growing up is Stokely Carmichael, civil rights leader, uh, mm-hmm. a.k.a. St- uh, Kwame Ture came to my house in Willingboro, New Jersey. I have uh, two pictures um, with him. Ooh. But these were, this is what my mom was on her quest. My mom was, you know, radical in her way and kind of really built that into me. And so that was kind of part of my childhood. She worked uh, her way up from not having a college degree, working in jobs uh, as a word processor in law firms, uh, actually in New York, and worked her way up to being an HR director of a major law firm in New York City. Uh, and so... Growing up, I, I saw her kind of making that commute every day. I saw kind of the things that she was doing and outside of her work at, in her in professional work, she was deeply involved in community, is a pastor, 
Um, and so she was instilling also faith in me and always kind of, we were always in church services or doing things that could kind of serve the community. And so my mom is entrepreneurial. My mom is kind of a, a fireball and a super, super creative. And those things really kind of started me uh, on my on my journey. I love hearing these stories of how, you know, parent, particularly in your case, your your mother is the foundation of how you've become who you are today. So Andre, connect the story of your mother to what you've started doing in yeah. your professional career. What, what did you learn from your mom's deep social justice, black is beautiful, relentlessness story to get you to what you started doing? Yeah, a big piece of what she did is, you know, I said my mom is radical, gave me this name. And then eighth grade, I'm going to a Catholic school in, in southern New Jersey and things are going well, great student. And my mother comes back uh, from a trip with my stepfather. They went to Sierra Leone and they went to Ghana. And she comes back, I think around maybe when I was in seventh grade and says, here's this brochure for the school in Ghana, boarding school. I'm sending you guys there, you and your sister. And I'm like, you know, like, you're right. <laughs> I didn't say that to my mom, <laughs> but if I have, like, okay, sure. Hopefully this is one of her, her little phases. Mm. She sent my mm. sister after eighth grade. And then I went, uh, when I went, I finished eighth grade in New Jersey. So she puts me on a plane, JFK airport to Kotoka International Airport, age 13. And uh, she stays here, sends me to Ghana for boarding school. And, oh, wow, you know, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What were your emotions then, right, about going, like, from life in, you know, Philly, southern, you know, New Jersey to Ghana? I assume you'd never been. Yeah, never been. I'd never uh, been out of the country. I've been on a plane maybe once to California to see family there. And she puts me on there. I'm by myself, mind you. My sister's already there. I'm by myself on the plane. Uh, and you're 13, right? So I didn't want to go. All my friends, everything was there. I actually, at the time felt with all my mother's kind of Afrocentricness, um, I felt embarrassed, right? Because I had my own misconceptions about Africa, right? You know, you're a kid, right? You're of kids and they're thinking certain things about Africa. And so I kind of just like dipped out. <laughs> I didn't tell people, further and friends, I just kind of like, where did that go? I didn't tell people. I was kind of embarrassed by it. And definitely didn't want to go. But my mom is not the one that you say, I don't want to go, right? And so I was there and I got there and when you asked about my story, it was really, really life-changing for me and a lot of what I do. I got there and, and one, I was adapting to a different culture. Then I'm adapting to a different education system and particularly a boarding school life where it was kind of like military style where the seniors could kind of like punish the freshmen and uh, what people might call hazing. You know, there was a lot of to it. Uh, and it was a really rigorous school. It's one of the best schools in Ghana. Um, some great African leaders uh, have attended um, that school. And so it pushed me in so many ways. And I had to, in that school, my mom wasn't around to kind of scold me about grades. And frankly, I think because she sent me abroad, I think she eased up a little bit because she, she felt bad, bad, you know, criticizing, you know, as I struggled the first year that I got there academically for the first time in my life. But I had to figure out to own my own education, to love learning for myself, not for my mom. And it was actually the perfect environment for that, where there were people that looked like me who were talking about, they used to call me John Keats uh, in school, right? I was, uh, one of my majors was literature. And so like, they mm. were, it was like just people really appreciating. It was a community where they were like, it was okay to be, to be smart. Or, and you talked about, you know, going to Stuyvesant, right? It was this place where I was sharpened. I was pushed academically in terms of my habit formation, right? Because I wasn't going to survive that school without figuring out how to organize my life in a different way without an adult. It was very student-driven school setting. And so I, I went there, I figured out how to be successful academically, which I'm, I'm, I was very proud about after struggling at the beginning uh, and came back one with a deeper sense of spirituality. Uh, that was something that I developed there. And I think that connects to where I am in my career. And then just a different view of education for myself and then for others. And so I came back from Ghana this was about 2001. I was actually 15, 16 when I finished high school there. And I went to Rutgers University in my home state for my undergrad in uh, economics. So I did my undergrad there. I did a master's in public administration there. Uh, I went to the Camden campus. I was mm. in a city or one of the poorest cities in the U.S. And when yeah. I was a senior, I did some crime data, crime research. Uh, and it was that at that point called one of the most dangerous cities in the U.S. 
And so I started to see a way to kind of connect my academic interests and my academic work to serving community, to empowering others, to kind of fighting for social justice. So my primary, the way my career started was like as a researcher, data, evaluation, statistics, but I was doing community work. And so this is kind of what led to my, my various jobs. So I, w- I worked at the Delaware Department of Education as a data data leader, a policy yeah. person doing a data there that was around 2012 to 2016. But through that process, um, in about 2009, my wife and I were really thinking about like, what could we do for the young people that are around us? Um, you know, I had jobs, I had, you know, grad school and so forth, but wanted to do something more. So we started a, a nonprofit in 2009 called Teen Sharp. It was a leadership program. I talked about the community that I had in Ghana. This is what we built, right? We built in Teen Sharp. It's this organization focusing on getting Black and Latino and low-income students to top colleges, having them become a certain type of leader, equity-centered leader, and really allowing them to sharpen each other like I was sharpened when I went uh, went to Ghana. Yes. And so mm. Teen Sharp was building while I had the day jobs to pay the bills uh, at the Department of Education. Along the way, I started an advocacy organization. Uh, so I've done a few, I have a few hats. I started an advocacy organization. All those things that kind of came you know, usually from a point of, of frustration with what I was seeing around me or the system. So those are some of the things that I've, I've done early in the career. Yeah. So I imagine there was an incredible amount of reacclimation, culture shock when you came back from Ghana. What did you what did you start noticing that maybe you didn't notice when you were, you know, in Willingsboro in Philly, yeah. you know, before yeah. you went to Ghana? Because I imagine that's a big part of like what got you to do what you started doing. Yeah. Drew right? Rutgers and, you know. Yeah. I mean, things that I noticed, uh, one, I mean, just on the like more superficial, I came back and styles changed, right? Because I kind of like, not the people <laughs> in Ghana. At my school, there were a lot of the kids, they were low-income students, but a lot of also very affluent kids. It's one of the best schools in the country. It's not a private school. Mm-hmm. You know, you test into the school and, and so forth. And so there were people mm-hmm. who were very much connected to, you know, American culture and clothes right. and style. But I almost like, as I'll share later with my move abroad as an adult, I kind of went there and, and used it as an opportunity to get my head clear and my focus and not really detach from some of the things that I was a popular student before that. And I, But it's also a burden, right? It was a burden to like wear the right thing, to say this right thing. To, and I treat it as like a, a long retreat, right? As a way to uh, just kind of strip down to the essentials of who I am, what really matters, like my faith, my spirituality, um, you know, my my learning, uh, my friendships. So I use it as an opportunity not to be like the cool American kid, right? But really to kind of reflect. So when I came back, I didn't know about how the culture, people were in Tim's, <laughs> you know, talking about yeah. butters and how you're supposed to clean your t- you know, So I came back and my, my sister was back at the time and her boyfriend was kind of schooling me up on like the fashion, right? The long white tees when I came back and one, you uh, know, yeah. I yeah. you know, you know, those times. So... I came back and, you know, obviously I, I adapted a little bit to that, but I also was a lot, was still had this clarity of what really mattered for me and who, who I was. I didn't, I didn't feel the need to blend in or fit in in that way. So I think that was something really powerful for me and that I've continued on with as how we create programs, right? Like trying to find yourself in a way that is really just amazing and, and transformative. So that was something that I saw. I think going there as well and just, seeing, you know, need and like the difference in wealth and resources was something that kind of came back to, you know, as I, as I came back and you go to a city like Camden, New Jersey, and you see the disparities, um, something that is really also eye-opening, right? To think of the, the wealth that's in America, but you have a city like Camden, like Wilmington, Delaware, where I've lived, right? Those other places is something that was really striking for me coming back. And then, you know, just like the education part, like I experienced global competitiveness, right? So I experienced it and getting there and being behind. And that was, it wasn't like these American schools, right? Like they had a dishonor list on the this administrative building for the school where they post your bad grades. They were, you know, they were, they were, you know, you would see what you ranked in your class. And I, wow, again, I started in my particular class, I was like 22nd out of 23 in my particular class. Uh, in math, right? So like, it was a different, really, really uh, aggressive culture with a lot of accountability. And, you know, coming back, it allowed me to really see the American education system in perspective, the good parts, but also the parts that I think are are, are not serving us well. Mm. 
I want to get at that a little bit more. So talk about, I mean, obviously you've, you've built a number of, you know, pursuits, right? To be able to solve some of the things you, you, you would experience, right? And so yeah. talk to me a little bit about what you saw between what wasn't working in the education system and what you started building, not only with Teen Chart, but some of the other things, the advocacy org, like you've built a yeah. number of things. And so yeah. what were you trying to solve with all of these things and how did you create those spaces? Yeah, I think I'm constantly on this quest, and this is why I really enjoy talking to you and others like you, is like when you are marginalized uh, background, marginalized groups, and you're on this trajectory, whether it's in elementary, middle, high school, college, later, it can feel very lonely, right? You can feel like you and I, we're a lot of times the only in a room, right? You're only in a room, and it feels very alienating, but it also can make you have self-doubt and imposter syndrome and all those things. But then imagine going to Ghana and you know, I just went back for the first time 21 years later last year with my family and just still seeing my my uh, friends from high school, like business leaders and what they're doing in the country, right? Like reminding us that we're not a problem. We're not a problem. There's no deficit in us. Like I reject the notions of scarcity of Black yeah. and Latino and like talent, like from people back, marginalized backgrounds. And so in, in what I built, I always wanted to like create this, like really this community that was just just amazing, right? That you come in and you you could be yourself, be authentic, and just be sharp, right? Be sharp, be intellectual, geek out, right? We talk, we call our, our teen sharp students, alums, unapologetic nerds, right? You could be unapologetic nerds. So that was one thing that we were trying to solve for creating this community um, that spanned. Also, we have most of our community will be like low income, but we also have some middle income families, and particularly we we learned that for them to kind of have a program like teen sharp, they have to go you know, to Center for Talented Youth or something where they're, they're the only, right? So it is really, they relish also being able to be in this community. So I think that was one thing we we're trying to solve for. I think another part is the expectations. Everyone talks about this, but the expectations are, our expectations are really, really high at Teen Sharp for our students, for our parents, for ourselves. And when you, you know, when you haven't seen enough, I think a lot of times in the States, uh, when you haven't seen what's possible, we continue to have lower expectations for for the, the students we work with. And so you come to Teen Sharp and we said, we're going to top colleges, right? And we're not just going to top colleges if you have a 4.5 and a 4.2, but we're going to keep, we're going to set this high bar and we're going to help you get there. We've had students who have had cancer while they were in high school and they took a year off of Teen Sharp and we, you know, came back and we still were able to support them into college. We've had students who had to separate from their families and were just kind of independent student at the high school level, finding housing and so forth you know, sitting at school like McAllister College, right? So the bar stays high, really, really high for their academics, for their leadership, for what they're going to do for the community. So that was something else that we're trying to address. And then another part is just when I talk about the dishonor list at my school, I don't think all that was the right way to do education, but I do think we've gone sometimes the way to the other end in America where it is so, it is too soft, right? It is too soft. It is too cuddly. It is too dishonest to our, our, our families. And then the world is rough with them, right? When they get out, right? We're like coddling and cuddly and not telling them that their writing sucks or not telling them where they really stand. And then the world, their jobs and so forth, aren't going to do that for them. So we are a community that our families really value that we're going to be, you know, we say love is candor. We're going to tell them the truth, but we're also going to go so hard for them. So those are some of the things that we were trying to address, Ron, at Teen Sharp. Delaware Can, when I started uh, that organization, started in 2016, but we launched the organization in 2017. That came out of my proximity to all these families, right? I've always had multiple jobs, right? So I've always had my day job. And then, you know, Teen yeah. Sharp, I was doing Teen Sharp in the evenings and the weekends. Teen Sharp is, meets on Saturdays. So I've been doing that for now 14 years. And so I'm at the Department of Education, hearing policy, politics, all those. And then I have this proximity that's making me say, are we really spending an hour or two hours talking about this? Is this what really families care about? And I grew frustrated that I was not seeing the empowerment of the families to get up and the community members to kind of rally and push to make an education system what they wanted to see. So that's where it led to uh, creating an uh, education advocacy organization in 2016, trying to get people mobilized, right? And frankly, a lot of the people that I mobilized were by my parents and students and teen sharp. <laughs> so I was like, here, here's how you... You know, bill becomes a law. Here's how you go and, you know, get an op-ed written. 
And so like the through line for me, Ron, is empowerment. Like I want to see our community, right? I talk about my mom, right? And this like black is power, black is beautiful. I want them to realize like how much power they really have. And and that is like kind of one of the one of the things that happens to us when we think we're uh, less capable than we really are. God, there's so much there. My God, you formed Teen Sharp and worked and did that while holding down a full-time job and then built an advocacy org too, which did you move into Delaware Can full-time and from yeah. what you were doing? Oh, wow. That's, that's a great question. So I think something that is critical to mention and is really important to my story and it connects to why I'm in, in Europe right now. You know, one of the things that really changed my life, 2005, I met, which later become my wife, Tatiana, and yeah. she's from Ukraine, came over and she was tearing the world up in, in Ukraine, you know, 19, working in the United Nations, doing youth mobilizing and you know, moving and shaking around the country, much more impressive than, than I definitely was at that time when I didn't really, I was very entrepreneurial, but I didn't have uh, either the right support, right kind of team uh, and right focus. And so when I met her, kind of sparks were flying in a number of ways, obviously romantically, mm-hmm. but then also uh, sparks were flying on just we together are the dream team together. And it was very apparent, very well, well before we started Teen Sharp, after we got married, we were kind of creating and building things and doing projects together. And so uh, when you asked about Teen Sharp, you know, I co-founded Teen Sharp with her in 2009. And, mm-hmm. you know, she at different times, I was going to have a full-time job and she was, you know, doing the, the lion's share of the leading of Teen Sharp because, with philanthropy the way it is, right, and the kinds of organizations that get support don't get support, we thought we haven't, we didn't have the the opportunity to have a million dollars in the bank before we started. Um, right, we've had, we we were a mom and pop shop earlier on. We later figured things out to the place where Teen Sharp is a, about a one point two million dollar annual kind of budget organization right now. But that was there were a lot of years where we weren't th- that wasn't the case, and so I couldn't work <laughs> full time there because yeah. we had to you know had to get a job, and so I, I did that. Um, so that was to your, to your question about teen Trip, but I was always involved uh, very deeply, whether I was full time or not. On my every single Saturday, I was there, uh, either in our New Jersey site or later in our Delaware site when we started that. Uh, as for the advocacy organization, I was part of a, a bigger national chain, and so I had a salary um, from the from day one. Uh, and frankly, it was interesting. I like to talk about philanthropy uh, and the problems a lot to see how I raised a million dollars almost in the year one, before the doors even opened of the advocacy organization, when I was connected mm. to this national big brand. And that wasn't the, my, the story when we were kind of creating an organization, you know, a grassroots organization in, in Teen Sharp. So, so yeah, I was able to get a salary there. And the, but it also shapes a lot of how I, how I saw the work uh, being connected to a big organization uh, and having to kind of bootstrap a smaller organization. It seems, you know, Andre, that you've been able to have context in these different organizational instruments, right? Yeah. Nonprofit advocacy org, right? We had this really good conversation. So the so audience should know the first and only time I have met an Andre in person was a chance bumping into each other because you stealth came from Poland to the ASU GSV <laughs> summit, and I see you. And so I don't, the audience can't see, but like, you're a tall black man. You're hard not to see in spaces. Right? I was like, you're like, Ron. I'm like, holy, Sandra, what's going on? And then we had this really good hour conversation. Yeah. And we we're just talking about, you know, you, you've started expanding a bit more than the hour conversation we had over lunch about, you know, Teen Sharp, you know, the Proximity Project, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm curious what you've learned are the pros and cons of doing the work within these instruments because. The thing I want to elevate is this idea of how you own your intellectual property, your IP. That that's what yeah. I remember when we had lunch. He's like, Ron, you know, what Tati yeah. and I discussed is like, how do we own our IP and how do we like translate that and move that because we created this? Yeah, yeah. So talk about that um, a little bit. Uh, that's I'm glad you brought that up. So uh, you know, Teen Sharp was our first baby. We now have three children, um, eight. Five and almost mm. four, so that is. Uh, uh, and Teen Sharp's your fourth uh, child. <laughs> yeah, Teen Sharp's the fourth child, the first, right? We had Teen Sharp <laughs> right. back in uh, 2009, and my first right. child in 2015. And so, 
we've been at it for a while and your identity kind of gets all kind of connected to Teen Sharp, uh, more so even for my wife, right? Because I've had other organizations and other, uh, just she's been, you know, mostly at Teen Sharp uh, for the, those all the years. And, you know, you just, you those are all connected and you're so committed to the cause that, you know, you're thinking always like having new ideas and ways that we can kind of address this. And so, and those change as needs change. So in 2020, when the pandemic hit, so many needs, right, for our community around uh, the pandemic and education, but then around racial justice with George Floyd's murder, Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor, everything that we we know happened in 2020. So a lot of our partners from philanthropic sector, from school, are reaching out to me. Uh, I was not a DEI professional other than kind of how I live my life, and I definitely study a lot about sociology and injustice and inequality. But they were like, what can we do out in Ray? What should we do? And I'm like, wait, what should you undo first? Don't ask me what to do. <laughs> like, maybe stop thinking what you should do and think about what we need to undo. So I was kind of writing pieces about uh, philanthropy and how they were not supporting Black-led organizations, particularly the ones that are the smaller ones. I was you know, writing things on blogging. Uh, I was having one-off conversations. And so I was reflecting a lot about this moment and what will it really take to have there be progress on the racial justice front. And... And I also saw from our students, because of my proximity to students, they were saying, oh, my district hired this diversity firm, and it was a total waste of time, or everyone, our, the other kids thought it was a joke, right? And I was like, we're missing this, this very painful moment, but it is an opportunity to make some progress. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. what really works? And in my career, proximity has been critical, yes. right? Like to be at the yes. DOE and to be in a policy role, and then not evenings and weekends, be in these communities that are talked about in these boardrooms. and decisions made on behalf of that changed things, right? Everywhere I was, right, to live in a city like Camden and and to, you know, move like there when I got married, you know, back in 2007 and be in a city like Wilmington, Delaware and to live and be, you know, be among uh, these communities that have been, there's been so much oppression, right, and disinvestment and so forth. It changes the perspective. It gives you an urgency to the work, for example. And so I was like, well, Proximity is a, is a catalytic thing. Proximity is a critical foundational piece that's missing from a lot of the diversity work. So I was like, as, as, as I do, <laughs> I created something. I said, well, maybe I'll just put something out. This is how I was getting this raw. This is what happens. So my wife and I, <laughs> it's a mess. It has been good, but it's a mess. We're like, we could just do this. Like, you always make it sound really small. Uh, and I got this very much from my mom. Uh, uh, we could just do this, right? And the next, you know, it's like 20 years <laughs> of a project of 20 years. And so... Mm. You know, I was like, I could, maybe we'll get 10 people. I don't know. I'm going to put some a flyer out, text some people, email some people to do this eight-week training, two and a half hours a week, where we're going to send our community voice and community's perspective. And it's just going to be, we're going to turn, you know, some of this work on its head. And people are going to go out and do community interviews. And it's going to be this amazing cohort-based experience. Maybe we'll get 10 people and we'll see how it goes. We got 48, Ron. 48, we've got foundation CEOs. Damn. We've, we got, yeah, we got huh. Department of Ed leaders. Nonprofit leaders, teachers. Yeah, we got a lot of people in the first cohort. It was amazing. The cohort was amazing. And people were like, you know, I didn't even have a real plan for all of that. They were like, one of the districts was like, we want to send nine teachers to the next one. (laughs) So guess there's a next, guess there's a next cohort. But at the time, we started the Proxy Project under Teen Shark, right? To your question about intellectual property. Um, We started uh, the Proxy Project under Teen Shark. And, it, you know, it was wonderful. It, it gave a $100,000 injection of, of revenue in Teen Sharp. And that was really powerful and, and wonderful. But I was putting my one of my children to sleep during the pandemic. It was a really hard year. My, my wife lost her mother that year. Hard for mm. a lot of us in a lot of different ways. I'm laying mm. down, putting my daughter to sleep, uh, thinking about family members and some of their financial predicament at that moment, thinking about wealth and legacy and so many things yes. that that... Have, that did not happen accidentally as as been plunder uh, in the black community, for example. And I was like, uh, I love Teen Sharp, right? I want to make sure Teen Sharp has all the resources, but this is kind of my IP. <laughs> this, is my, this is kind of my IP, and it's kind of shoehorned into Teen Sharp. And you know that could, this you know this a for profit model could allow us to build some wealth for our family build some legacy and we could, we, you know, I'd love to be the big, the, you know, a big donor to, to teach art, right. But not have to go and just always uh, have the hat out, right. To, to these foundations, mm. which are large, you know, mostly white. And so uh, we did that. And my wife being who she is, she's like, no, 
don't take it out. You know, we, you know, we, the revenue is great for teacher. I'm like, listen, listen, we will, we will donate to teacher. We'll continue to have this symbiotic relationship where we hire our students to run the, you know, help me run the cohorts, right? We hire our parents. It's going to work out. So uh, we did it in January of 2021, created the Proxeny Project as own business, for-profit business, and it's been growing, right? I'm still working at Teen Sharp. As I said, I always have two jobs, <laughs> but I'm still working at Teen Sharp. Always on that my hustle, day job, right? That's my day job, but the Proximity Project is growing um, really well, and it is doing what I was envisioning, right? Uh, I've had a chance to go train 12 of the largest funders in the U.S. about Proximity on that hat, and I also kind of pitched, you know, Teen Sharp and the work, right? And so uh, at this point, those things are, are, are intersecting in a beautiful way. Wow. So it's fascinating you made that decision, right, which at least at first, right, gave this, as you said, infusion of revenue into Team Sharp, but making what sounded like, at least in a short term, a hard decision to say, no, we need the proximity project because we're building this. You, It sounds like you would learn from Team Sharp, like, wait a second, this is a nonprofit. And at the end of it all, yeah. The board technically owns it, not <laughs> yeah. you and Tatiana, yeah. right? And so you want yeah. like having it dissociate from Team Sharp, so it's something that y'all could have. Sounds like has been able to open your eyes to what could be possible. So I guess this is quite like because you, you're you're in both worlds. I don't know off the top, although I'm sure they're out there. Folks who've been nonprofit founders who've also founded for profit ventures. Yeah, yeah. So because you've done both, like, speak to the nonprofit leaders about the wisdom you've learned from being able to be strat, like being in both worlds. What have you learned from nonprofit founder to like for profit founder? Like, talk to those worlds. As you do this, you do this really well because you always hit on the right things to kind of get, um, you hit on the right things. (laughs) <laughs> 20 uh, years was, of interviewing people for jobs you know how to pull it out <laughs> um, I would say that it has as I, as I was telling my wife at the time right I mean we were thinking about the money part but there's so many other ways that it's benefiting the, my nonprofit side and in some mm. of the ways as has as been a theme in my career are coming through a point of frustration because I'm seeing I'm seeing how differently nonprofit leaders are treated and for, and for profit leaders right and like I see it when you're charging for your services in that way. And, and you know, nonprofits can charge and have fee for services, for example. But I went to New York to have some meetings with some you know, large funders because Teen Sharp has grown to 1.2 million, but most of that is, is through local Delaware, yes. Philadelphia, Southern New Jersey funders. We have still not with all the great, this is kind of my my uh, a little bit of a triple bush holder with all the great work, the results, students going to top colleges. Um, we have not, we're not in the cool kids club right around national funding yet. And so I had some meetings with some people and, you know, as we're trying to break into that. And I left those meetings, frankly, and I was, I kind of left and, you know, because I usually get those meetings to call my wife and I'm like, yeah. I'm just, it makes you tired because when you're on the for-profit side and you kind of, you build your thing and people pay, they don't pay, but there's not this kind of like sense of power asymmetry the same way all the time Yeah, where it's mm-hmm. like, one of the people I actually was meeting, a wealthy person in New York in the meeting, he was encouraging us at Teen Sharp to create some more for-profit, kind of for, for more, some more channels, revenue generating channels. And then he was giving, you know, I think sound advice, but he said, then you won't have to go begging for money. And he didn't mean it anyway, but it stuck, right? Because I left that meeting, I'm like, I'm tired of begging for money. I'm tired of, you know, of trying to run for your philanthropic deadline. Oh, you know, the deadline's at five, not midnight, right? Like all these things. Last week I was recording mm-hmm. a, a video mm-hmm. late at night for the yield, you know, because it's got money. And I'm just like, I'm tired of the dance, right? I'm tired of the dance. And it doesn't mean a for-profit, you still don't have to pitch and write proposals and all that stuff. But I just feel like there's a different energy that we, we we're met with in the nonprofit space of disrespect of, you know, uh, unless you're kind of doing it on the, on the for-profit level that you're, you're begging, right? Or, you know, that it's just yeah. not as where it needs to be, right? And a lot of people who are doing the money, you know, giving out the money, they've been in business, right? So they have a different view of that. And so it has really put me, you know, me on the, on the journey also of like, how do we, for example, take more control and not have, I want self-determination. When I left that meeting, I was sitting on some street in New York, on the phone, just sitting in the corner, on the corner, standing on the corner, mm. you know, ranting with someone on the phone. And I'm like, I want self-determination. 
And, and so as we were building Teen Sharp, we're still applying for grants and so forth, but we're, we're building the design right now, redesigning, we're calling it Teen Sharp 2.0, in a way that is giving ourselves more agency, that is setting ourselves up to have more self-determination that is not funder-dependent, because that it's tiring, man. <laughs> it is so tiring. And, you know, and I think there's so much powerful, beautiful work in communities of color, in the nonprofit space that is being hindered, hampered, undercut because we're having to get the, those resources from philanthropy. So what advice do you have for nonprofit EDs, CEOs, especially founders, right? Because I, I can imagine, and especially, well, let's get nonprofit led of but led by people of yeah. color, particularly black leaders, right? What advice yeah. do you have for them based on what you've done, right? Because this frustration around begging for money, I was at a recent um, event in March where there was a huge conversation on this with folks in philanthropy. And I got to tell you, once again, surprise, surprise, who are the folks from the audience at this event who just raised arms and for lack of a better term, raised hell. Black yeah. folks, black women. Yeah. The, the frustration, I mean, Otten Ray, if I could have recorded, if you would have been in the yeah. room, you'd have been not in, you would have walked up to the mics like, I gotta, I gotta share with y'all something. Yes. And it, it's like, did it feel like an attack? Probably. Was there anything that was really fixed in the situation? Unfortunately, no. And so this cauldron of like frustration so deeply exists because the power imbalance that's how the system of philanthropy was designed, right? So yeah. give that advice to other um, nonprofits led by people of color, particularly black folks like you. One thing I'll say, and this is going to sound it's like a little bit of a plug. I was, I committed myself, I was going to work on a book this year. And, you know, with my many hats, I was like, which, which, which topic do I write about? Um, <laughs> I'm so sleep, man. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I started, I started writing the book finally on, on this very topic um, for founders and leaders of color. And so I will, uh, that book, you know, right now it's called, you know, The Guide to Starting and Growing a Nonprofit in an Unjust World. And uh, that that came out of, because of my frustration, one of our proximity programs in Delaware is uh, we are convening, uh, we're facilitating a community capacity building program for founders and leaders of color in Delaware. So we had 20 in our first cohort last year, 25 this year. So I'm living this, right? What you're talking about, I'm having these, you know, these monthly meetings these one-on-one conversations, mostly Black women, um, probably 95, 95% of the cohort is Black women, and they're yep. grassroots organizations. And mm-hmm. so to answer your question, I'm going to cover a lot of this in the book, but to answer your question, the community part is really important. You know, the, the community part mm. is is really important because we are kind of, you know, I'm very well connected, but even I felt felt so, so lonely all the time. And, and if I didn't have a wife who we were in it together, Yes, you know, I would have given up, and I would have just been crying somewhere in the, in the corner. So uh, that that community <laughs> yeah. part is really important to to get support, to to share information, but also for your just the affirmation. Because one of the things that I'm really doing heavily in the book is the same thing I talked about in Teen Sharp. We are enough, right? We are enough. Like the things that you're gonna, you know, people will feel like, well, I don't know budgeting, or I'm not a great fundraising, and you take it internally like it's you. And the system is designed right? The way it was designed. And, and then the, one of the, the most egregious pieces is that we take it in as if it's our flaw, right? We're lacking. Because, you know, I've been there with $1,000 in the bank account with a 20000 payroll, um, April 2020. Talk about this in the beginning of the book. And we take it as if it's a, a flaw with us. When the system is designed in a way that gives resources to people who come from the top schools, right? And that have the, the most privilege and most in, the, in certain networks. So I think the one part is like find ways to strengthen yourself, right? Um, find the communities that you can be part of or create some kind of, you know, small group, right? Of other founders and leaders of color that are going to remind, you know, help you, that you're going to keep you, yourself strong. Cause that is a part where a lot of us, it's just hard. I, I get text messages from others right? Or just like the pain points. When you see someone get funding in your community, you know, it's not doing good work. You know, they're not proxy They're not anywhere. And you see them get mm-hmm. a big grant. It is, it, it's every time it's just like a blow with pain, like a, a, a stab, right? So I think that is one, one piece that is really important for those founders. Uh, I think the other thing that is important is like, how do you rethink if you're going to play the game, if you play the game the way that uh, everyone plays it, I think you're going to find yourself that is always going to be, it's like Sisyphus pushing up the, the boulder up the mountain. Yes. 
And we experienced right. it at Teen Sharp. And so this one is a hard one, Ron, because uh, we were have, even with our million dollar budget at that, at that point, we, we were doing what another organization would do for $5 million, right? And so at some point I said, we're going to, we're going to have to limit the number of students. We can't have 87 seniors because we, they all apply to 20 colleges <laughs> and they get in, but we, we, they, but, but we have one person working with them. And that is, nobody could do that, right? Nobody could do that except the heroic people on our team, but that is not, that gets you to burnout. And so, for example, Amen. we shifted the work. We went to 45 this year who all did ama- amazingly. It was hard, right? Because we let pe- some people, uh, we couldn't take certain people, but we were able this summer to send uh, a black woman on our team, leader who's been with us forever on a three-month sabbatical. And she cried. She cried in our last meeting that we had together and I because we were kind of giving her affirmation, wow. like, go, tune out. And she's like, in my whole life, I've never experienced something like this in the time that I'm going to get. It's always been about my kids or it's always been about something else. And so I'm trying to find ways. Uh, we have to, like, get this community where we can start to think of new models and new approaches because they will kill us, Ron. They will, when I say they, it's like, who's the they? It is the funders who will pat you on the back. And say, great work, <laughs> great, great work. You're doing great. But then you get trapped in this like superwoman, superman level of work without the money, right? And I and earlier on in my career, my wife and I were like, yeah, they told, you know, everyone's like singing our praises. Even people that right. you serve, right? Even people you serve who are yep. like, oh, they would, t- they would tell like the Michael Jordan, I joke about that, like the Michael Jordan story of how he had the flu game, right? My wife has those ex- examples, right? Of And they would tell those stories, but you, you know, what about your health? What about your mind, right? What about everything else? And so mm. that's what that's what I would say. Get your community, and then like let's start to build some new ways of doing this work that are going to allow us to to really have have uh, freedom, allow us to have uh, even more impact. Well, let's talk about that combo around you know what, what I would interpret as like building more space for like not only personal liberation but like systemic yeah. liberation, right? And so. Let me let me start with the personal liberation. So Ott and Ray, I, I, I see when I follow you on social, one of the things that I've seen you pursuing yourself is your own health journey. You seem to take a lot of kickboxing classes these days, yeah, right? Is that still yeah. something you're doing? Yeah, Talk to yeah. me, like, because I think one of the things I have found, particularly in social impact, particularly nonprofits, is nonprofit leaders by design because of the way that the super person dynamic is it's about the work the literally killing of self means that taking care of one's health is seen as selfish yeah right so talk to us about your own journey of like saying no i've got to if i don't create that for myself and tatiana they're like we're gonna die yeah yeah i have to i would not be on this podcast without shouting out someone that was really formative for me and experience that was mm-hmm. formative for me to answer this okay. question uh, Idrissa yes. Simmons at Pahara, and ah, yes, I, yes, I went through the Pahara program, and I, you know, got into it, and I didn't know what I was fully getting into. I kind of was like, okay, this is prestigious, it's great, people of color, another thing. I'll get engaged in. I'm gonna learn about policy and connect, whatever. That's what I thought, and I got into Pahara. I think we started in 2018, my cohort, and it was life changing for me from the first session where we got together at that point in Virginia like four or five days, right, with this group of leaders of color in education. And it was an experience like no other. And it was holistic to what you're talking about, right? I thought we were going to go in and, you know, everyone tells what they do in education. It's kind of these kind of groups. And it was it was different, right? Like I left the first session. And I didn't know what anyone did professionally. I didn't know what they did at their job. We connected at a human level, talking about how do we become a better husband and you know, how, how are we as uh, to our, our parents, right? Who might be aging in different ways, right? Like we got into all those things, Ron. And so that was happening. And then in the readings and the reflections that I saw, like, you know, it was, it was therapy, right? People were crying at different times and sharing about yeah, uh, different yeah. dynamics. And as I was reading, I realized, as I kind of shared with the nonprofit question you asked me, that this system, racism, sexism, oppression, is going to kill us, right? It will kill us in so many different ways, physically, right? We know black men and, and kind of the, their mortality rates and so yes. forth. Like there's research on this. It will literally kill you, but it also yes. kill you in so many other ways if you were not, if you just kind of just go by the system. And even when you think you got out, because a lot of us, right, we've gotten to a different level than our parents socioeconomically, it yep. still will, will hurt you. Because I'm in a room with people who are doing well professionally, 
right? These are leaders, right? Uh, uh, yes. These are high achieving professionals, and there were tears and there were there were pain of yes. of the workforce. And so yes. I'm like, I, so I was just really reflecting on like changing the way we do things. And so I came back, and my wife and I had been considering going to Ukraine, where she's from. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we're going, let's go, let's go, <laughs> let's move to Ukraine. Uh, our kids, three kids, whether to connect to the culture, want a different experience. And that really, that, that pahara and then that decision has changed my life in so many ways that I, some I know and many I'll find out later. So we ended up moving to Ukraine in 2021 of January. And it was the best thing. At that point, I didn't realize until the day before I left for Ukraine and I bought a scale for the first time during the pandemic and I had gained 40 pounds. All I did with that year was work, right? The year before I was just working, helping, serving. There was so much need, right? I started an immigrant right. fund to raise money for undocumented Delawareans. Like we were on all cylinders just, just trying to serve. My kids were home all the time, as we know, right? right. Uh, so right. It was a tough year and I didn't even look. I looked up and I gained 40 pounds. And I got to Ukraine and I wasn't like on a trying to lose the weight when I got to Ukraine. I, I just said to myself, I'm going to reinvent myself here. Things that I don't do in America. I really barely even had <laughs> sneakers, right? I'm going to like try some things. I don't know anybody. Go back to like Ghana, right? Like, I was like, when I was a Ghana, I don't know anybody. So how I could I can get all this stuff out and focus on the core. And I and I was doing quick boxing with my wife two times a week. And I was running in the snow, like it was some rocky, <laughs> some like Creed, Creed two or three, right? Like running in the Eastern Europe in the snow. Um, and I was doing all the things and I looked up at the end of the year and I lost those 40 pounds by, by December of that year. And I was feeling balanced spiritually, physically. I was having so much joy of just our life, like the quality of life there and the opportunity that mm. our money now was longer, <laughs> right? Being in the country. So I can imagine. Yep. Yeah, our kids were in a school for three hundred and maybe fifty dollars a month. That was like, like the like like amazing, amazing, amazing. School. Can you imagine? Oh Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Oh, I, I'm trying to imagine because that a private school which my two daughters is in the um, forty stacks. Yeah, yeah, three fifty a month, and there was like golf. Uh, there was a golf course, and there was, she was doing golf after school, and you know everything, right? For three fifty a month, so so many things were were just so beautiful. Uh, and we loved it there. And I was kind of like, I'm staying over here. I'm going to keep working virtually in the U.S. and I'll come back as I need to. And then um, the war happened. So this is this is how I got to Poland. But but yeah. the lesson still. So we're still here. Things are going well for us in Poland. But this lesson of just like if you just change your perspective a little bit, um, there's a way a different way that we can live our lives, right? And yeah. I never would have. I'm playing tennis now. <laughs> I, I never like I was I, I wasn't doing anything, Ron. I didn't do anything athletic for yeah. like f- 15 years, right? I just was like, work, work, mm-hmm. work. And I used to remember at Pahara- the Ron, was, Rihanna were, song, yep, can't, yeah, yeah. it's not all work, 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 yeah. right? Yeah, I used to like, at Pahara, there was a crew that was like, we're going to the gym at six in the morning, who's meeting? And, and I was like, oh, that sounds like a nice concept, but I'm gonna be, work- <laughs> I'm gonna be working in my hotel room. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it has been life changing. It's so fascinating to see in the arc of your life Getting into a new space allows you to reinvent yourself. You going yeah. to Ghana, there was this space reinvention, though you fought initially. But since you were there, and it sounds like you had a lead with your sister having gone, so I'm sure you yeah. learned from the experience of your older sister about having yeah. been in Ghana, you know, before you. And then this opportunity to create a new environment, be in a new space, to go to yeah. Ukraine, to go to Europe, to yeah. lose those 40 pounds. Right. Yeah. And just try different things and to yeah. act differently. Let's pre- so for folk like because I, I would argue like sometimes the creation of a new space isn't literally moving to a new yeah. space. It's reimagining the space that you're in. And so talk to us about how you are reimagining space today for Teen Sharp and Proximity Project in yeah. terms of the, the culture and the way that folks show up to do the work, but also be in harmony with their life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is what, what Adrisa did for me and, and the team and the moderators. So there was more than just her, but she leads that work um, that it doesn't have to be moving, moving abroad. Right. Which I still would tell people at least taste, try, try it out. Uh, those right. that have the, mm-hmm. the means to do that. I think a lot of people don't or some people have written to me and say they want to and they're but they're scared or whatever. Or they, they're worried about the logistics of it. But if you have the means, I would say some time abroad um, would really right. be enlightening because you see America. And what you know, in a very different light. I would also say we have to create 
new culture and new spaces in what we do, how we do conferences, how we run meetings, how we design organizations, learning opportunities. And I saw that with Idrissa, and she is basically through doing that gave me permission to bring that kind of more authenticity to the, the, the learning environments that I create, right? Because there is a default culture. And so when you when you go into a training, right, for example, and you feel like, oh, I have a solid content to, content to work, work on and I need to get all this across. Now in my work, I, I start with community, you know? I'll start with community, even though it means I won't have as much time for all the content I wanted to cover, but that's, that's critical. And so like, we can design spaces like what, what I'm doing with these founders and leaders of color in Delaware, where they can come and we can kind of just be our full selves and think about not just fundraising a nonprofit or budgeting, but think about, how, uh, you know, the other parts to the right. Get, they can get affirmation, they can get support and all of that as well. So I think when we do our events and our activities, that's the other part. I think like creating time to break away from the like r- the patterns that are existing, they're not really serving us. I'm talking mostly to leaders of color, but they're not serving anyone well. When we do the, the Proxini Project, I have now we have yeah. education, we've had philanthropy, we also have healthcare. So I have doctors yes. logging in from their offices and, mm-hmm. you know, hospital executives and crying. And, and it's like, right. just, they're like, they, they've, they've haven't had anyone ask them, you know, we in a breakout group and what are your life be most grateful for? And then, you know, they get a chance to talk about that. Right. Or the, some of the things that we bring up that are like, that's not professional, right. That doesn't belong in this space. And by right. pushing it into the space, it is, has given so much healing to, to people. And so, yes. We, we, we ignore that part. There are a lot of us are, there's a lot of healing needed uh, on a number of levels. And so I think that's the part like Ukraine and Ghana were a place of healing for me, right? When I say healing, I was a popular kid. And I'll say, you know, one thing about my spirituality, I was teasing this, this guy, this kid. Uh, I wasn't a mean or bully kid, but you know, I had, I had some moments and I was in Ghana and I was teasing this guy on my board in school about like how his, how he inept he was with like, you know, talking to girls and, you know, he was like, just like, and I was teasing him, you know, we're in a board house because 80 of us together. And he starts preaching to me. He like dropped some scripture on me on the the Bible. I was like, you know, Mm. Bob is a pastor, but I, you know, I I knew some stuff, but I was like, everything for me was like a performance and superficial. And I was like, oh shoot. And it like really hit me to my core. And I took my, you know, changed. I took my faith seriously and got really involved with Christian groups on campus and so forth. And I just Mm. saw him when I got back to Ghana. He's a pastor now. Uh, when I got back to Ghana wow. last summer, but like mm. getting to the to like the core of who we are, and and stripping away all this other stuff that we think really matters, it's hard sometimes to have that clarity, you know, until you've seen a counterfactual, like a different kind of culture and environment. And yeah. so I think we we have the power to do that within whatever locus of control we have. I tell the people in the proximity project to do that, like whatever it is, your team meetings, you know, you don't always have to just like you, you know you can talk about people's like children and family and life. You don't have to just like business, business, business. So I think those are yeah. some of my, my reflections there. It's fascinating you say that. One of the things I learned, interestingly enough, from conducting semifinalist interviews for a previous agility consulting client and the hiring manager started off the introductions in a way I had never seen done since then. I've tried to incorporate it in snippets with my own team meetings and admittedly, <laughs> I'm going to shout out Benny Vasquez from the KIPP Foundation here, right? The chief equity officer there. The whole, what's your story? That comes from me learning that from Benny. So the three questions he asked for people to introduce themselves, including interviewers, in an interview setting on Zoom. What's your story? What are you bringing into this space? And what do you need? Andre, what do we, what do we fucking ask those questions to people? In a professional setting? Like almost never. I can't, people were like, their minds are blown. Now, granted, right, you might argue, chief equity officer, you can then see that these are roles for folks doing equity work, right? But even I would say equity, like even in those spaces, yes, those questions are probably maybe a little bit more asked, but like, shouldn't those be things that are asked? When I have onboarded people to my own team to have like one-on-ones, that's the first question I ask them. And we talk about it. It's like, what's your story? What do you bring to the space and what do you need? And then it becomes this really rich dialogue. And in my head, when I was creating this podcast, I said, wait a sec, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hearing people's story then becomes the foundation to building trust and seeing where there's synergy. 
When yeah. you do that, things open up. The, there's yeah. so much possibility and we build, yeah. in your word, so much proximity. So yeah. to that point, Aunt Ray, we're, we're at the point where, to ask the other bookend of the Ronderings yeah. podcast, what is your Ronderings? Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I've been teasing it a little bit in the, in the conversation and mine is really around how do we hack the system? And, you know, when I think about the things that we're up against, when I think about the systems, how, how they continue to just, just how sticky they are, right? And the more folks like us, we read and you see how the like tax system was set up against to privilege certain people, right? Like you're just going to see it on so many different levels. I've been really on a quest to figure out ways that I can uh, hack the system, right? I can find a way to get around, you know, things. So that, in my case, means making my money longer, right? Knowing that there's so much black-white wealth wealth inequality, right? My money is longer. I'm able to do more by living abroad. And that might be, mean being moving within the country or having kind of ways to pool resources and pool, you know, what we have, right? Like whatever it is uh, from a personal level and a professional level, you know, we've been really thinking about how do we change the work so that we can give sabbaticals and we can make sure that our staff have what they need to, to really live the lives um, that they deserve to live, given how hard they work <laughs> for the community? And I think if we're waiting for funders, if we're waiting for someone else to do it for us or to make it possible for us, right, it's going to continue to be a point of frustration. And I think I'm deeply inspired, Ron, uh, of these people who are just it's they're not waiting for anyone right like they're finding ways to have self-determination and so i'll shout out for example a podcast that i listen to religiously called the side hustle pro podcast um and in that on that podcast they talk they feature only black women entrepreneurs right and you know she has hundreds of episodes right so this idea that we're not out here <laughs> doing this is nonsense right and you're just seeing people who have day jobs and got their product at target right and while they still have a day job and they're slowly building mm to a place of self-determination, a place of safety net and wealth. Like that's the kind of quest I'm on, Ron, in many different ways, like for our students, for our community, like how do we kind of slowly build or, and, and collaborate in ways that allow us to have true power, have true agency and self-determination? Because it's just, it's, it's getting old, right? It's been old. <laughs> it's been old waiting on blessings from, from folks who, you know, that's, they're just, they're, their heart isn't there. And, and so I think, I'm seeing, I'm not fully there yet, but I'm seeing so many signs that we can operate in a different way that allows us to expedite the thing that's burning in a lot of us, just not wanting to have to get someone's blessing to, to make your dreams possible. So I'm seeing that, that's my rendering, and I'm just grateful you're allowing me to, to share it here in this conversation. Andre, before I let you go, brother, what do you want to publicize about your work, your book, future talks? Like, what do you want to let the audience know about? Yeah. So uh, as you see, I wear a few hats. Uh, if they want to learn more about our work at Teen Sharp, it's just teensharp.org. And um, we're now a national organization. We, you know, we, we are fully virtual, so we can serve students. We had a California kid who's going to Stanford. So if, if that interests you, the Proximity Project, we run cohorts twice a year. Um, they're really powerful opportunities. Um, so that's the Proximity Pro dot com the proximitypro.com and the book does not have a domain yet it's coming coming soon but uh, through the proximity project if you go to the proximityproject.com you'll get in my orbit uh and i'm so excited i'm looking to uh, hopefully release that book by the end of this year or early next year and i'm working very aggressively on it because i'm just fired up as you can see yeah and reshare the title of your book again for the audience um, the Guide to Starting and Growing a Nonprofit in an Unjust World. The Guide to Starting and Growing a Nonprofit in an Unjust World. I've shared some some of the chapters with a few people that are that mm. feel the pain I feel. They were like, I can't wait for this to come out. So it is motivating me to, to kind of pick up the pace with writing. Uh, and in many ways, the work I'm doing with these founders and leaders of color, uh, it is a kind of a companion to that work, right? So every, every month we meet, uh, I'm trying to finish a chapter related to what we are talking about logic models, uh, storytelling, and kind of self-reflection, budgeting, right? But not just the traditional stuff around, around these things, but what does it really yeah. feel like to be us and have to do this uh, in the way that, uh, in a different way? So uh, I'm excited about that mm. book. So hopefully people will get it when that's out. Well, when it is a New York Times bestseller, an Amazon bestseller, it can be like, yo, I had Otten Ray on the Ronderings podcast, he, we, we we just we just have all the plugs on the podcast. So 
just grateful for having you in the spot, for taking time to chop it up with me, to hear about your wisdom, your entrepreneurial spirit, and most of all, like your deep sense of justice to liberate our people. Yes. Thank you, Andre. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Awesome. Ronderings fam, see you on the other side. Peace. What's going on, Ronderings Nation? My buddy, Atenre Elaine, and shout out to our boy, Christopher Ruskowski, for introducing us some years back. I bumped into Atenre at the ASU GSV Summit, and I didn't know he was going to be there because Atenre, even though he is a tall, tall man, can be a little stealth. And so we caught up over lunch, and I knew from talking to him and from our relationship, he had to be in the Ronderick's past uh, a podcast. He uh, sees the world differently as someone who's at the intersection of building a for-profit business, nonprofits, um, as well as thinking about intellectual property and generational wealth. So check out the podcast. He's got a lot, lot to say. Peace.